The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, well, this morning we pick up in our passage in 1 John uh, chapter 2, and we're going to talk about love this morning, uh, specifically how the love of Christ transforms our love for others and our relationships with others. And in this 10-week series, uh, there's going to be three weeks where we're going to hit on this topic of love, because John, in, his, in this book, uh, 1 John, he, he talks about love quite a bit. And so you can kind of see this as love part one, um, and then in chapter three, he, t- he talks about love again, and then also in chapter five. I remember somebody saying that love, or that words can be like coins. The more you use them, uh, the more worn out they become. And maybe that is never more truer th- for a word like love. That it's, oh, it can be overused, and the more we use it, uh, the more worn out it can become, the more unrecognizable it might be. Uh, we, love our, uh, we love people, spouse, friends, parents. We love uh, our favorite pair of shoes. We love a sports team. We love a pumpkin spice latte. And so what does this mean? This word love can be so overused, and we say, I love all of those things. So a fresh introduction, I think, to this topic of love, a fresh perspective and and eyes to see what this means for us is, I think, helpful. In the New Testament, uh, there'll be three different words that are used in the original language for the word love. There's the word eros, which is where we get the word erotic from. It's a physical type of love. There's the, the word philo which is where we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's a, it's a, a love of friendship, a, a brotherly love. And then there's agape. And this word is elevated to a much more potent meaning and a much more potent presence in the New Testament because it describes the kind of love that God has for people. Uh, familiar verses you might recognize, like in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You might also, you'll also see it here, uh, actually in 1 John chapter 3, that famous short phrase, phrase in, this, in this book where it says, God is love. This is the word agape, and we can't understand what love really is, or even how God loves us without looking to Jesus. And, and so it is love that is defined not only by looking at him, but by seeing the diverse relationships and ways that he loves his people and seeing how he calls us to love one another in the Bible. And so, he commands us in Scripture to love God. He says, to love others as I have loved you. These are from the words of Christ. He says, you've heard this commandment before, but I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And so, John is saying here, where we pick up, he's saying this isn't a new concept. It's not a new commandment, but it is. So, it's old, but it's also new. And if you see this, it seems like John may be confused here. He's saying, there's an old commandment to love one another as, as Christ has loved you. But it's also a new commandment. And it's not too difficult for us to understand, I don't think, to understand how something can be both old at one time and new at the very same time. Especially in a post-Pinterest world that we live in, right? Where did you get that phenomenal bookcase? Oh, I found it in a ditch. At the time, there was a family of squirrels living in it. I brought it home. I dusted it off. I, I sanded it down. I, I put a fresh coat of varnish on it. And now it's home to all of my, you know, pickling jars. I don't know what I think people are doing that these days. 
And so in this, so we understand, we get this, how something could be old and new at the same time. And it's, it's in, I think in this reference, John is talking about, about this command, that it is old, but it's new because it appears with a new luster, a new beauty, a new shine. We duff, duff something off and, and we bring it to life and, we, and people look on it with, with a, a fresh joy and they behold it with a, a fresh perspective. And this is the love of God as it's brought to us in Jesus Christ. And so this commandment to love God and others is given a new beauty because we know Jesus. Love is more than this hazy idea or, or flowery expression. Love is more than this sentimental emotion that we, that we feel for something. It's an intensely practical thing. It's an intensely active and transformational reality that God expresses to us and calls us into. Everyone who, who knows Christ and desires to follow Him is called to, to have the same kind of love. And so followers of Jesus are, I'm going to use a really a strong word, required to have this kind of love, to love one another. As imitators of Jesus and as image bearers of God, we are called to love. And so John has some explaining to do as he says, okay, there's something old, but it's also something new. Let me explain myself. And so he goes into that, and he explains how this something old can also be something very new. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we walk through this passage. And I want to look at three things that it's new because it gives us a new, a new example. There's a new example of our love. There's a new context for which, uh, in, in which we are to love. And there's a new power by which we actually go about loving others. And so let's talk about those in turn. First, let's look at this new example, this new example that, of our love. Verse 8, he says, The commandment is true in him, who is Jesus, and it is also true in you. The true light is already shining. Last week we talked about this light that has come into the world, that the idea of light and that God is, that Christ is light, that there is no darkness in him, there is no impurity, there is no blemish, there is no weakness at all. In the love of Christ there is no fault, there is no failure, there is no weakness at all. God's love is without blemish. And what he has, what God has in himself, this love, God is love. It's not something that God only does, it's something that he is. He, he gives it to us and we must reflect it. All those who love Jesus and follow him must reflect this kind of love. Christians ought to reflect the love of Christ, not like a parrot reflects or imitates its master, but like a mirror reflects the object that is in front of it. And so it's not like we see God doing something and say, okay, then I need to do that. It's that we, are, we present ourselves before Christ. We, we behold his love, his glory. We're transformed by it, and we can't help but reflect it. Similarly, how you might stick a, a, a metal pole or an iron stick in, in some hot ambers, and after a long while of sitting in there, you pull it out, and, it be, and it's glowing. In fact, this is what... Moses, his face was said to shine like when he was up on Mount Sinai and he was in the presence of God and he was with him for several days there. And he came down from the mountain and and they said his face shone like the sun because he was in the presence of God. And so being in front of God and, and embracing God and resting with God and presenting our lives before God continually 
we begin to reflect that love and that glory. And that is the way that we should love. It is in Him, and therefore it's also in us. If you stand before a mirror and you see no reflection, you're a vampire. There is no life in you. If you're a Christian, but you have not love for others, the life of Christ is not in you. These are hard things that John tells us. If we want to know what the love of Jesus is like, we, what love is like, what God's love is like, we, we look at Christ and we see this supreme demonstration of love. Uh, look at John chapter 15. have it up here. It says, Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Uh, agape love is this unselfish love. This self-sacrifice in nature. It's a love that says, I love you in spite of yourself. It's the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that we should have for one another. I love you in spite of yourself. No one has to be taught how to be selfish. I mean, this is something that just comes so naturally. You know, what's interesting is there's, there's no act more natural for a person than to love themselves. There is no act more natural for a person than to be selfish. And yet, there is no greater expression of life in Christ than loving others. A.W. Pink, uh, late theologian, says, The one who claims to be a Christian but hates anything that is like God is to be charged with making a false profession. That's why John says, if God is love and you don't have love, then how could you have God? I told you that First John was going to say some really tough things, that it was going to really challenge us, and it was going to really stick something right in our face so that we couldn't help but look at it, think about it, and search our own hearts. And this is what he is saying. How could you say that you love God and you don't love others? Because if you do, and the love of God is in you, then you will love one another. And it's a hard thing to hear, but the opposite is also, it's actually very encouraging. Our love for others is a witness. It can be like a thermometer that the love of God abides in us, that the love of Christ is in us. We are never more like Jesus than when we love like Jesus. Pastor in um, Idaho Douglas Wilson says, love describes the way God is. And therefore, the command to love is really a command to be like God. To obey it by grace is to bring yourself into conformity with the ultimate reality. The decision to obey, to love, is to bring ourselves into the ultimate reality of following God. When we're commanded to love, it is because we're commanded to conform to the image of Jesus. And better yet, our passage says, in him there is no cause for stumbling. And I want to think about that with you all. What does that mean? In him there's no cause for stumbling. And I believe this means that a person who keeps themselves before Christ, continually and increasingly before Christ, like a mirror, we're standing before him, learning from him, embracing him, being loved by him, yielding to his will for our life, We are continually desiring to be conformed to His image in all that we do. We become a person that not only loves others well, but we enjoy all different kinds of the fruits of the Spirit. We become a person that becomes more like God 
conform to His image and His likeness in all of the areas of our life. And the Spirit, God's Spirit, works through us in powerful ways. When we abide in Jesus, we not only love others as we're commanded, but we bear all the fruits of the Spirit. They're connected. So are are you lacking in joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control? If you're lacking in any of those things, this is what John is saying. If we love God and the love of Christ is in us, then in those things we will not stumble. It is like a person that puts on the armor of God. It's not that bad things don't happen to us. It is that we become protected from the temptations of our enemy. Because we become fortified, we become hidden in Christ. And Jesus is our example. Trying something new, learning something new can be very difficult. Maybe like loving one another, loving others, this could be something that could be very difficult. Like you're a newborn child trying to do something you've never done before. I remember in seminary learning how to read, write, and speak Hebrew. And it was, it was like uh, I had repressed memories, painful memories of a chi- being a child learning how to speak English. And those were just like coming back. Like I had PTSD or something. And all of a sudden I'm remembering how horrible it was to learn a new language. And it was thoroughly painful. It was very difficult. I felt I really did, if I could equate it to anything, it felt like I was a child learning how to speak, write, and read for the first time. And our professor would give us these sheets of paper. And, and on the top of that paper would be his writing, his words, his Hebrew letters written out, the alphabet written out on the page. And on that page there were horizontal lines like you would see in a kindergarten class. And there were actually vertical lines that were kind of slanted to say, this is where you put each letter. I want you to write Look at the letter on top of the page, and right below it, I want you to imitate that, to mimic that, to copy that. Use this as an example for how to write. And through that, it was very helpful. How do I do this again? How do I do this? He says, refer to my example. Refer to what I have done. And mimic that. This is the way that this commandment becomes new. Because we say, God, how do I do this again? How do I love? What have you told me to do? And he says, Look to Christ. Look to who He is and what He has done. Mimic Him. Imitate Him. Reflect His love. And that is how you learn. That is how you become, that is how you become obedient to the command that He has given to us. If Christ is our example, here's the interesting thing. He's not only our example, but He's also given us the paper for which we are to practice. And you know what that is? You know the context? Here's our next point. We are given a new context. The context we are given to write out, to practice this example, that's the church. Where on earth can we get a context, a situation, to get a bunch of different people together who have nothing in common, get them together and say, live life together? It's it's thoroughly unique. It's entirely... Um, what's the word? Painful. <laughs> that's, that's what some of you were thinking. It's a cruel joke. And yet it is the most intentional, it is one of the most intentional, purposeful 
things that God has organized for us, for our joy and for our sanctification. The context for every rela- everyday relationships is the body of Christ. The context for which a Christian, a person who loves Jesus, knows Jesus, is to work out their life and their faith that God has given to us, the commands, is with other brothers and sisters. The church is not a club that we belong to, but the context for our spiritual maturity. Do you believe that? Is this a new concept for you to think about it in this way, that it's not a, a club, that's something that we go to, but it's actually the context by which we, we learn everything it is to, to know Jesus. Consider the church as your internship for your eternal responsibilities forever with God and with others. It's a foretaste of our lives together. Because we're promised that by faith in Christ, we're kept with Him, we're in relationship with Him. We learn this in, in our first week in this study, that we have fellowship with God and with others. And this is the very thing that, jo- that Jesus prayed for in John 17. He prays that we would be one with God and one with one another as He is one with God the Father. That we would have this bond of unity and friendship with each other. And before we have that, we are given this life that is not just a stepping stone to the future, but it is, it is the context for which we learn about God, where we grow in our relationship with Him, and where we learn how to be obedient. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to grow? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And honestly, right in the middle of our relationships with others in the church, that is like the hardest place to do that. And we think, well, shouldn't, shouldn't there be a, another way? Shouldn't there be a, another way to do this? And, and we see that Jesus has created for himself a community. He's called people to himself. And he said, no, this is the way, and it's good. And in the middle of our passage that we read, there's different members of the church that are of this community that are dressed, children, young men, and, and fathers. And it's really interesting how, how John constructs this. And most Bible scholars would agree that John is not addressing different age groups. So he's not talking to, to people of different ages, children, young men, older men. But rather he's giving titles to represent different levels of spiritual maturity, different levels of the Christian experience within the church. And he has a special address to each type of person, each person at a different level of their spiritual maturity, a different person, uh, a different level of experience that they have had in life that could be a benefit to the church. He says there's something like an, an immature Christian. And this isn't, a, this isn't a derogatory word when he calls them little children or he calls them children. This is the kind of person that needs to be reminded that their sins have been forgiven. Not because of what they have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And I want you to consider little children. I mean, is there any context in life? Now we're going back to not as a metaphor, but actually as a literal young person. Is there a life stage more legalistic? than that age? Is there a life stage more performance-based than being a young child? They live in a police state. Every, am I wrong? Everything is like, do good, get reward. Do bad, get punishment. For little children, their world is the law. I'm, saying, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm saying this is the way that it is. 
I'm sure we have this as you grow older, you become adults, or even in middle school, high school, and adulthood. There's performance-based. There's, there's reviews at work. There's a, you may have a boss. There's, <clears throat> if, you, if you do bad, if you break the law, you're going to get punished. But there's freedom. There's a ton of freedom. But for a child, they're in this context where everything that they see is, if I am good, I'll get good, and if I'm bad, I will get bad. And Jesus says to these young Christians, to these immature Christians, you need to hear the central truth of the gospel. Because young Christians then can also feel this same way. I love Jesus, but I'm, I know I need to work really hard. I need to, I need to earn his love. I need to, I need to do good, and, and I'll get good. And, and the most basic central truth of the scripture is this. You are forgiven, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. You are loved because of what Jesus did. You are accepted because of what Jesus did. And you need to hear probably the most important three words that you'll ever hear. You are forgiven. I forgive you. I forgive you. What a beautiful phrase. Not because of anything that you've done. And even in Scripture, we see that the law, the law of God, it says, is a guardian. It's like a tutor. It's a tutor to teach us about Christ, to usher. Like in the classroom, you're learning, you're learning, you're learning about your need for Jesus. And then when Jesus is presented, you don't need the tutor anymore. You don't need that guidance. You don't need that that shepherd because you have the truth of the gospel. And if you are a Christian who feel like you're under that, that, that law, that curse of, I just need to be better for God. John says, I have a message for you. You are forgiven. Because of what Jesus did, for his name's sake. What does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be a person who has had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, based on the work, his work on the cross. The basis of the Christian faith is the goodness, the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus not the improvement of our character. And this is the gospel, and sadly, so many Christians haven't even gotten beyond that central truth of the gospel. So many Christians feel like if they've got that, they're, that, they, are, that they are mature in their faith. And you know what surprises me? Elsewhere in, in Scripture, Paul even says, the most basic thing of the faith, I mean like ground zero, 101, of the Christian faith is realizing that Jesus died for your sins and not because you're a good person. And yet so many Christians see their life as, well, I became a Christian when I stopped doing bad things and started to do better things. And this is where he wants us to soak it up. This is the gospel. And then he goes on and he talks about other family members within the church. He talks about Spiritual fathers. John says, I'm writing to you because you know, who, you know him who is from the beginning. Notice how he speaks, also, he speaks to immature Christians. He speaks to young men who represent the young, those, those kind of in their faith that have this zeal for God, a lot of energy. They love God's word. They want to conquer something, fight something, defeat something. And God says to them, he says, or this passage, John says, you have defeated the devil. As you embrace God's word and live your life in light of that, yielding to God's will for you, 
the devil is defeated and is powerless. And also, think of a young man. You also think of, well, so much energy, so much temptation, so much testosterone. Now, when he says young children, young men, and, and, and spiritual fathers, this isn't just masculine. This is talking about the body of Christ, people in different situations, different experiences within their journey of faith. But it presents different struggles. And I want to say something to the spiritual fathers. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. He says, I'm writing to you. Notice how you can never be too mature to receive instruction. Those who are most mature in the faith ought to be those who are most ready to listen and to receive. There's something about a mature Christian's walk that is tempered. It's... it's it comes from many years of trusting God. It comes from many years of being in times of crisis and surprises and seeing God as faithful and true even in those times. And so there's something sweet about the life of a mature Christian that when crisis hits, they have a calmness about them. Not because they are detaching from their world, but because they know that God is there. I think a sign of, of real spiritual maturity is the ability to see God working in every situation and resting in that, even if you can't see an inch in front of your nose. Do you have that? You're not a bad person if you don't. But there is something that we should grow. Actually, next week he gets into this. He talks about growing from infancy to adulthood, from infancy to maturity. We should grow. We should want to know the faithfulness of Christ and trust in him. There's no panic, no rush, no. there's only peace and trust for a mature Christian. And God calls the variety of people, all these different types of people, whether they be young, adolescent, or adults in the Christian faith, He calls them all together. And you know what I like about this? He's writing, and He's writing to all these different people. You know why? Because they're probably all together in the same room. And it's such a great manifestation of the the body of Christ, when we have young and old, age-wise and also maturity-wise, coming together, sitting under God's Word. You know, a lot of times different people in church can be like a stumbling block, right? People can get in your way. You know, I'm having a hard time growing in my faith because there's all these new Christians or non-Christians around. Or I'm having a hard time, like, being okay learning about the Scripture because everybody's just, it feels like they just know everything about the Bible, Where can I get a group of people where I don't feel like people know more than me? I don't want to be the dumbest person in the room. There's no one one in my life stage. There's no one doing what I'm doing. There's no one with my kind of work or my kind of family. I think God has given us the context of his church to live out the life of faith. And instead of exploiting the differences, we should be unified in our differences. We should see the complexity of our different lives, and we should see this as an asset, not as a stumbling block. And in no way am I, I'm not telling you guys, hey, you guys need to get it right. If anything, I'm actually celebrating this because I think we do that really well here. And I want to affirm that in you all, to continue in that and to celebrate that. And these examples I think that John gives us are made to show us that we are created to be communal people. We're created to be lovers of God and lovers of others. It's impossible to live out the love of God and this commandment 
apart from the authentic, regular, connected community of God's people. And this passage speaks so loudly of this reality. We're addressed as children and young men and fathers, and, and John understands that we're all made in the image of God, and we define ourselves by our network of relationships. I mean, I am a, I'm a father. I am a son. I am a husband. I am a pastor. All of these words, I am defined by the context of my relationships. And Paul, John excuse me, is saying we are defined also by the context of our relationship. If you're a Christian, you're defined by your relationship with God and your relationship with others. You cannot cease to be a member of the family of God. You can only be a faithful member or an unfaithful member. But you're always part of the family of God. The church is at the very heart of God's purpose for us. And so, with this in mind, verse 11 makes so much sense as he gets into this. He says, Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When Christians love one another, the body is healthy. When brothers and sisters in Christ pursue one another, love one another, say, I forgive you in spite of what you've done, the body is healthy. And lastly, we see that we see there's a new there's a new example, a new context, and now a new power. So the, the question, I think a natural question is, okay, we've been given the example of Jesus. He's given us the context to live this out. How on earth do we do this? Because I've been trying to do it, and I keep failing at it. I'm not great at it. And I want to talk about this new power that we've been given to accomplish this new commandment that we've been given. You know, the old law, when, when Moses went up on top of the mountain, uh, and wrote the law of God, the Ten Commandments. They were written on tablets of stone. And the prophet Jeremiah said, a, a day will come when the commands of God, the law of God, will not be written on stone, but it will be written on your heart. And so the old commands are written on stone, but now the new commands are written on our heart to shape us, to transform us. They are a part of us because God lives in us. Have you ever treated someone in a certain way, gone home and thought, why do I keep doing that? I hate it when I do that. Have you ever done that? I hate that I keep doing that. I know that is that, that's the wrong thing to do. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to act that way, talk that way, feel that way about somebody. John tells us it's because that we, our lives are being governed in that moment by darkness and sin and Satan. I wish there was a better answer than that. So you come to me and say, Pete, I keep doing these things. Why do I keep doing this? Because you're listening to Satan. It's like, what? Is that true? Is that real? Is that re- no, there's got to be something. Come on, I'm not a devil worshiper. But John is saying that when we are being governed, when we are not loving, it is because in that moment we are being governed, we are being guided, we are being shaped by, by darkness and not the light of Christ. One of the things that hurts our love for one another is that we have a, a sweet tooth, I think, for things that are not for God. And John talks about this. He says it's, it's a lust of life, a, a lust of our eyes, that we want things. We kind of have a desire, a craving. And um, I've heard it said that we, we serve what we desire most. And the thing that we want most, and oftentimes it's maybe our own comfort, our own, our own pride, our own, uh, we want to, our own interests, 
we become selfish because that's the thing we want most, and so we serve that thing, and when we do that, we neglect others. We don't love others. We have a, a, a sweet tooth for the things that are not from God. He uses the words like pride of life and desires of our eyes and desires of the flesh. When our focus is, is not on Christ, we become emptied of our ability to resist sin and temptation. Indeed, we are to abide in Christ, as verse 17 says. I see this word, when we abide, when I, when I think of that word, I think again of, of John 15, that passage um, in the, the, great, the uh, upper room discourse, John 15 to 17, where Jesus is talking. And he says in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You know that feeling I want you to remember again when you think, why do I keep doing what I hate doing? Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote most of the New Testament. He said these very same words. He said, why do I keep doing what I hate doing? Look at Romans chapter 7. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want I keep doing. And he says, wretched man that I am. He says, who will save me? Who will save me? Who will rescue me? By what power will, uh, will I find escape from this reality that I'm living in? And then he turns to Jesus. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can, can you think of some of the things that you might turn to? Think of that moment. Why? I hate what I do. How can I become a better person? Who do, you, who do you turn to, and what can you give thanks to for that change? Thank you, retail therapy, right? Thank you, alcohol. Thank you, comparing myself to others and realizing I'm not that bad after all. Thank you, you know, insert daytime talk show here. Whatever that is, what is it when you feel like a bad person, that you're not a loving person, what do you do? Paul shows us the answer. He says, I go to Christ. Thanks to Christ because he is the only effective, sufficient power to allow me, to make me, empower me to be a loving person like God. Only Christ holds the power to make us people who love well. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as he's looking down, he cannot see something that is above him. When we are looking at ourselves, when we are looking at our, even our own sin and fail to look at Christ and lift our heads and see his example, the context he's given us, and rest in his power, only then can we really have a change. Love flows out of our soul's rest in our communion with Christ. We become a loving person by loving our communion and rest with Jesus. If you're struggling with love, you're really struggling with resting in Jesus. If you're struggling with loving others, you're really, rest, you're really struggling with feeling empowered by the love of Christ, by looking at his example. And I want you to know, I, I realize that a lot of this talk has been about brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of this talk has to, been to Christians, and you may not be a Christian here and and I want you to know I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Um, this context, as John is fleshing this out, he's actually speaking 
particularly, specifically to Christians who love Jesus and understanding maybe even even in his context and in ours, we might not have that. And I realize that you might be thinking, well, that's my problem, is that Christians aren't loving, Christians don't love. And I want you to know I, I would not disagree with you. And that is our goal, to follow Christ and in following Christ and knowing him, that we would know his love for us and that we would actually reflect that love to the world around us. That we would make all of life about Jesus, all of our life, all about Jesus. And you may have some criticisms about the Christian faith, and I probably would not disagree with them. But that's, what, that's the journey that we're on. We recognize that we are sinners, that we need Christ. And if you are a Christian, I want you to hear this as well, that to walk with this kind of humility, that those who don't know Christ or that, uh, that are living in, in lifestyles of that, that might be considered ill repute in your mind, that you would reflect the love of Christ and rest well in him so that you might know how to love them. And so Jesus is our, he's our everyday Jesus for our everyday relationships. And I want you to think of people, just as we close, I want you to think of, think of one person. I mean, let's start with a good, a good step. One person whom you need to love well. And that you would not just say, I'm just going to grit my teeth, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and love this person and put up with them but I actually want to reflect Christ to them. I don't want to disengage. I don't want to engage in an inauthentic or phony way, but I want to love them well. And I want, to pray, I want you to pray for that person. I want you to ask God for opportunities to be before that person to love them. And hopefully maybe that person's right here in the church. And I pray that God would bless us as we are faithful to him, to be obedient to him. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.